Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, After having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Well, welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood. I'm excited you're listening in for season four, where each month I'm co-hosting this podcast with a different young woman, and my special co-host shares her faith story and questions related to spiritual matters, and then throughout the month, we're inviting special guests on to share their stories and also address some of my co-hosts' honest questions. Once again, I just want to say thank you to those of you who are investing in this podcast through Patreon. Your financial support is greatly appreciated. And if you are interested in learning more about how you can help keep this podcast on the air by becoming a Patreon supporter, more information can be found on my website at findingsomethingreal.com. Today, we are back with this month's special co-host, my very special Taiwanese daughter, Ruby. Ruby, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me here. Well, I'm so glad that you're you're here on time and early. This is actually a very the very first time I told you I don't know today's guest, so you had to be on time. <laughs> I know, and I'm here. Yep. I, I did call you. I did. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just like a real mother-daughter relationship here, Ruby. I feel like yeah. so much love, even though mm-hmm. thousands of miles away, you know? I know. Yeah, I yeah. feel that too. Good. I, yeah. I, aren't you glad you signed up for this? I mean, don't don't give up. I don't am. give too much away. I'm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Because, and once again, it's six a.m. and um, here where I'm at, and I just love you. So here we are. Here we are. Um, so welcome back. Did you have to work today? Yeah, I do. I do. I just got back home from work. And, wow. Yeah. And it's nine p.m. where you're at. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, well, it takes commitment to show up, uh, for something like this at 9 p.m. at night. And I'm really grateful for you, all kidding aside. So thank you for being here. Yeah, of course. So Ruby, um, I think we should give a quick shout out to my assistant, Tara, Tara Evelyn, um, who reached out to today's guest. Um, Tara, thank you so much. Um, she was super excited when today's guest said yes. Um, Our guest today is Father Andrew Damick. He's an Orthodox Christian archpriest and the chief content officer of Ancient Faith Ministries, the world's leading English language Orthodox Christian media ministry. He is the author of four books and host or co-host of multiple podcasts, including 
Lord of Spirits and Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy. From 2007 to 2020, he served in pastoral ministry in Orthodox churches in West Virginia and Pennsylvania. He was raised by missionary parents in the evangelical Protestant tradition, and he's also married with four children. Father Andrew, welcome. Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be with you today. Oh, I'm excited. And like I mentioned before we hit record, your audio sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I am blessed with it. I am blessed with a beautiful studio to work from. (laughs) That's great. Is your studio in your home or is it? No, no. um, I I refer to this as my tower of podcasting. Uh, I work in a, a, a small office building here in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. Oh, so I used to live in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. How far away is that? It was near Philadelphia, like an hour and a half from Philadelphia. Are you on that side or closer to um, Pittsburgh? We're on the Philadelphia side. Uh, So Emmaus is in the Lehigh Valley, right next to Allentown. Um, So we're about halfway down the state uh, and uh, about 20 miles west of New Jersey. Okay. So Allentown is close to Reading, correct? Uh, About an hour away. Okay. Because I remember Allentown. See, so it's, it's close. Ruby, I used to live kind of by there. That's cool. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's awesome. So is your downtown a lot of um, where I used to live in in Pennsylvania, there was a lot of row houses and uh, like people sitting on their front stoops and things like that. Is that kind of? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, Emmaus's downtown is not much of a downtown. Uh, I mean, the whole town is three square miles total. Uh, but Allentown is right next door, so there's plenty of urbanity if that's what someone really wants. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's really cool. Um, I'm very excited to talk with you today. I don't have um, very many people in my life who who are Orthodox Christian, um, except my assistant Tara, she is. Um, and so she's tried to share um, some of her expression of faith with me uh, several times, and we've had some really good conversations about that. So um, I know Ruby had some questions about um, the differences between denominations and that kind of thing. But I, before we get into that, I would love to hear a little bit about your faith journey. How, how did you go from um, you know, being the son of missionaries in the evangelical tradition to becoming an Orthodox Christian? So it's it's a really long story, but uh, I will try to summarize because, as you said, this podcast is only an hour. Um, <laughs> many of my a lot of my podcasts are known for stretching two to three, sometimes more okay. uh, hours. Right. <laughs> so I have to I'll have to you know pull back a little bit. Uh, I, I like to joke that that making a long story short is not what I do for a living. Um, but yeah, so I was raised as a son of evangelical missionaries and. Um, I don't remember a time that Christianity was not just the identity of my family. Um, it was it was never something that we just sort of did on Sundays or kind of nominally identified ourselves as. Um, it was always our life. And uh, so when I was 10 years old, we moved to the Pacific Island of Guam uh, for my, my uh, parents to work at radio stations actually there because uh, the mission that they belong to is called Trans World Radio, so which is the largest Christian radio organization in the world, actually. And um, so, uh, you know, it was it was radio life. Um, uh, you know, there, there was some outreach to the locals there on Guam, but mainly Guam is useful for 
uh, shortwave radio because of its its location. You can reach pretty much most of Asia, uh, the east coast of Africa, all of Australia with shortwave radio from Guam. Mm. So that's why we were there. And so we lived there for five years and um, moved back to the States when I was uh, 15 years old, almost 15, just started high school um, the year before and um, finished out schooling in Ohio to go from Guam to Ohio. A lot of people in Ohio were kind of wondering what we were doing. But, uh, and then, and then when I, um, my, my family moved to North Carolina shortly after I graduated from high school. And while I was in college, um, a friend of mine that I had known from our missionary days on Guam told me that he was planning to leave evangelicalism to become a Roman Catholic. And so when, when I talked with him about that, um, I asked him why he would want to do that. And the reasons that he articulated, um, kind of gave voice to some things that I myself had been thinking, but had not, didn't really have the words to describe. And um, ultimately the thing that led me from being an evangelical to becoming Orthodox was really the question of what is the relationship between truth and beauty and worship? And one of the things that made it possible for me to begin sort of questioning um, the, the place that I was and how it formulated that, that relationship was that at the time I was working as a, um, a theatrical stagehand. And so besides doing theater, I also did concerts and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I was one of the people skulking around in the background wearing black that, you know, <laughs> pressing buttons and moving things around and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, uh, I, I began to realize that the big concerts that I, that I worked at during the summer where I watched people have these overwhelming emotional experiences in reaction to what they were seeing on a stage, that there was uh, sort of too much of a parallel between that and the, uh, the megachurch, the beginnings of a megachurch that I was attending on Sunday. And I began to kind of deconstruct it in my head a little bit, like, well, I could actually artificially create the reaction that these people are having on Sunday the feeling that they have, that they're having this emotional, spiritual experience. Like I can make them have an emotional experience by means of technique, right? And, um, you know, the, the as in the Wizard of Oz, you know, the man behind the curtain, right? That I realized I was the man behind the curtain. And so um, while in no way did I question the sincerity or the, um, the true love of the people that I was with in church, for what it is they were doing, um, the emphasis on feelings, um, the, the magic was gone, so to speak. And, um, and so I began to read about church history and especially what the early church looked like and how it worshiped and look at the way that early Christians themselves talked about their worship and what it is they were doing and why they were there uh, and what what occurred, you know, to them and among them while they were there, and um, uh, the conclusion that I came to is that the only church that still existed that actually continued what the church that was taught by the apostles were doing was the Orthodox Church, and um, so having concluded that, it was just a matter of just honesty to to join. And uh, so I connected to a local church where I was and um, was just utterly blown away by the experience of worship in that, in that church. And um, one of the things that really struck me was that 
even though maybe I initially had some very strong emotional experiences, uh, there was something actually much deeper and more powerful that didn't depend on how much sleep I had the night before or, you know, uh, what I had to eat, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, how, how I felt, how things were going. It simply was what it was. And so I could enter into it and be part of it and uh, know that it was not going to be blown about, blown around by cultural winds and not going to be blown around by how, how I or the people who were leading the worship felt that day, you know? So, so that's, that's, that's really, that really is the short version of, of the story. <laughs> but like I said, I was exploring this, this question of what is the relationship, relationship between truth and beauty and what does that have to do with worship? And, um, and, you know, does the question of individual taste, is that actually really important for how Christians worship? And the conclusion that I came to was it is not actually important. And my personal tastes are in fact, irrelevant to how worship should be conducted according to what you see in the scripture, according to what you see in the early years of the church. I mean, there's no place in the scripture where anyone says, how did you feel about the, the worship that you were just in? Like that's never expressed anywhere in the scripture. So it's clearly not something that was important enough to write down. Not that people didn't have feelings. They certainly, I'm sure, had feelings, but, um, but that's not what it was about at all. So a couple follow-up questions to all that. Um, I know enough about Orthodox Christianity to know that the fundamentals are the same, uh, at least from I mean, maybe not. <laughs> I, I'd love to know uh, if that's true, uh, that you believe uh, the Apostles' Creed just like I do. Um, but tell me if I'm wrong. And then the second question, the follow-up question to that is, how did your parents feel about your turn of expression of faith? I'll answer the second one first because it's probably a little bit easier. Okay. Um, <laughs> So initially, my parents were kind of confused. Um, they did not oppose what I was doing. Um, my mother actually realized I was I was planning to become Orthodox before I did, um, which was uh, she she knew her children very well. She she passed away several years ago from brain cancer, uh, but she she knew her children very very well. And um, there was one point where she told me. Um, if you believe that you cannot live the rest of your life without this, then this is what you have to do. And I mean, she said this to me being a committed evangelical for her, her whole life from beginning to end um, and, and probably not agreeing with a number of the things that I believe. Um, but, but uh, I received that as essentially her blessing to, to do that. And uh, my father's response was, a little bit more fatherly, you know, and uh, it was, you know, well, I'm really glad you're going to church every Sunday, <laughs> you know. Um, it's not that I ever stopped going, but occasionally I would, you know, work on Sunday or something like that. I didn't really see this sort of absolute necessity to always be there um, until I became Orthodox. Um, so, so that's the short version um, of that. With regards to the fundamentals, um, I mean, there's nothing in the Apostles' Creed that the Orthodox would disagree with. Um, we don't actually recite the Apostles' Creed as part of our worship. We recite generally the, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, which is a bit longer. Um, but, um, you know, there's a kind of prior question to some of this, which is the question of what exactly is the gospel? 
right? Because the gospel is sort of prior to any creedal affirmation of faith. Um, and I've come to believe that uh, the gospel as generally preached in most of American Christianity, particularly in the evangelical world, which, as I said, I was raised in and steeped in and part of a whole organization that preached it and brought it to the whole world. I mean, like, so this is, you know, this was my deal growing up, um, very much the identity that I had, um, that it could be kind of summarized with mankind has a problem, you have a problem, Christ has come to solve this problem. Right now, the way that that gets worked out differs according to different groups, right? Um, and uh, in in many ways, the problem is framed as uh, God has a problem with you, and in order to fix that problem, this is what you need to do, right? So, um, you know, for instance, it might be described as a sense of justice, um, that kind of thing. You know, that there must be a penalty for sin, that sort of thing. Um, and, um, uh, you know, most of that I would certainly agree with in a certain sense, but I would actually regard that as not being what the gospel is, right? Because if you look in scripture, when someone says, what must I do to be saved? They say that after having had the gospel preached to them. They don't. So if, if, if what must I do to be saved is the gospel, then why would they say that after having the gospel just preached to them, right? So rather the gospel, um, if you look at the, the, the context of the scriptures, the, the word for gospel in Greek is evangelion, which we usually translate in a very super literal etymological way as meaning good news, right? And I like to tell people sometimes the gospel is good news, but it's actually not good news for everybody. It's very bad news for some of us. And, and here's what I mean by that. So in the ancient world, Evangelion actually was not simply used to describe, oh, I've got some good news for you. You know, uh, we did very well in this year's, you know, crops or like, that's not, that's not what it means. Um, it actually has a kind of political meeting, which is a herald would ride into town and he would announce his Evangelia. So it was usually expressed in plural. And, um, it would consist of three things. He would announce who his Lord and master is. So let's say it's Caesar. Okay. So we'll just go ahead and pick the top of the heap in the Roman empire. My Lord Caesar, who is, uh, you know, the savior of the world. He is the son of a God. Um, he is the one around whom time itself revolves. Uh, so they would, they would, he would say who he was list off his titles. Maybe that was the first element who his master was. And the second thing that he would announce is, here's what he's accomplished. So usually that was a list of victories in battle. He's defeated the Persians. He defeated the Gaul, you know, the Gauls. So if it's Julius Caesar, he, he, he won the Gallic Wars, you know, up in France. Uh, they didn't call it France at the time. But um, it would list off all the things that he accomplished. And then the third thing that was said in this, this announcement was, here's what he expects of you. And that's because he's coming here. And he's setting up his government. So you can either be on board with that, or you can be put outside of his rule, right? And now in the Roman Empire, being put outside Roman rule usually meant that you would get massacred. So in, in, you know, when the herald would come in, into town and, and announce these things, it was usually after your army had just been defeated out in the nearby battlefields, right? And so um, uh, 
the gospel is actually a gospel was something that was happening, whether you liked it or not, which you could get on board with or not. Right. So, so then when the, the apostles of Jesus used this word evangelion, which they decided to use in the singular to say, this is the gospel. Like I'm not listing off a bunch of them the way that a herald that you would be familiar with would do. I'm giving you the one and only. This is who our Lord and master is. He is the God man. He's the son of God from before all eternity. He's the son of Mary in time. He's fully God, fully man. Here's a list of his titles, which often sounded a lot like Caesar's actually, as if to say, Caesar is not really the person who's the savior of the world. The, our master is, and would list off what he'd accomplished. He's defeated his enemies, right? And in the scripture, the enemies of God are the fallen angels, the fallen spiritual beings who rebelled against him first and then drew mankind into their rebellion. So, so when, when this part of the Evangelion was announced by the apostles, they were saying that their master had defeated on the spiritual battlefield the demons that had been oppressing mankind, right? And if you look at the scripture, this kind of uh, collision with paganism was happening everywhere. It's, it's all over the scripture. There's lots of things in the Old Testament, New Testament that are specifically about confronting the gods of the nations saying these are actually demons, they're actually fallen angels, don't worship them. And in fact, look how weak they are. Like you have to, you have to feed them and clothe them and serve them yourself. Whereas our God is the one who created everything and doesn't need anything from anybody. Right? So, so this announcement of a defeat, a victory on the battlefield against all of the little gods and big gods that had been being served by the nations. Right? Um, that's why there's several places in scripture where it says the gods of the nations are demons. It's essentially, it's, it's a, a, a challenge directly against what scripture calls the, the rulers, the principalities and powers of this age. Right. Uh, you know, there's very little actually that, um, that the, the apostles said about sort of challenging the, the earthly rulers. That was, that's, you know, that's, like, why bother with the low ranks when you can actually directly challenge those who are really ruling this world, which are these dark fallen powers, right? And then the third part of the gospel, of course, is, you know, the, the commandments about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. I mean, there's numerous times where Christ says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love, so you can't say you love Christ if you don't actually do the things that he commanded you to do. I mean, he says that himself. The apostles say that. That's over and over again, right? So that's what the, that's, that's that, that word evangelion, it actually had a meaning in the ancient world, which the apostles used to say that their announcement of what Christ did, his, his, who he is, his defeat of demons, sin, and death, and then his commandments for how you're supposed to live in his kingdom, that was the, the final, the ultimate gospel, the one that's, that's supplanting all the other ones that had ever been announced, because there are lots of other gospels that have been announced, right? And using that exact word, like it's not a word that was invented for Christianity, right? And so then the response to that, what must I do to be saved? Like, wait a minute, he's coming here. The day of the Lord is coming. He's coming to judge every man according to his works. What do I need to do to get on board? Because the alternative is really bad. It's, you know, to be outside of, 
a kingdom that's not just local to you know the Mediterranean, but is local to the entire cosmos, right? So, so I would say that um, that this fundamental question, which is kind of the entry point for Christianity, is definitely different between what the Orthodox Church recognizes in Scripture and has always taught versus the um, the reduction that occurred in the Reformation that reduced it to the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Mm. Right. Um, so, so uh, in a certain sense, yes, we, I'm sure we agree on a lot of things. Um, like I said, I grew up evangelical and so that was my world. I, I, I know it pretty well. Um, but on the other hand, um, there is a, there is a cosmic and mythic and spiritual reality that the Orthodox church emphasizes, not just in what it says, but the way that it worships. I mean, constantly, every single day we have hymns, about Christ and his saints confronting demons and throwing them down and destroying paganism and ending that kind of worship. Um, it happens. I mean, it's, it's, it's all the time, all the time. And of course, because it's in scripture, we see it everywhere in scripture. That's fascinating. So um, just keeping the person who may be listening to this later in mind, because uh, I'm a simple yeah. person. <laughs> And uh, usually, uh, you know, our conversations, I try to simplify them a little bit, which maybe that's why I'm evangelical. I don't know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, so the fundamentals are the same, but in your opinion, or um, in church history opinion, I don't know. It's early. I'm hoping I can articulate this correctly. Um, that's my excuse. Um, it's been diluted a little bit. Am I correct? There's been uh, something that's been left out, uh, that's been kind of forgotten, uh, that in the Orthodox Christianity, you're seeking to reclaim. Is that is that a fair assessment? Would you agree with that? Um, so I, I wouldn't say that we're trying to reclaim it, but but simply continuing it. Continue it. Right. So that historic, I mean, if you look at historic Christianity up to the Reformation, um, this understanding of what the gospel is, is universal, right? This notion that, that, that um, it is part of a cosmic spiritual battle, right? That there's, I like to say, there's a war on and we are caught in the crossfire, mm -hmm. right? And then what happens with the Reformation is that uh, soteriology, the question of exactly how one is saved, becomes the overarching concern, which, which actually then makes it very uh, anthropocentric. It's very focused on humanity then in particular, right? Um, not kind of really realizing that there is this conflict that predates, predates humanity's problems. And humanity's problems is an outgrowth of that pre-existing conflict. And then with the advent of the Enlightenment uh, a couple hundred years ago, and then the onset of materialism in the way that most people think, you know, this idea that the spiritual world is mostly not real. And once, and I have, and like if you're some kind of believer, then you have little bracketed pieces of miracles and supernatural things you believe in, right? Rather than the whole world being suffused with a spiritual presence everywhere right? Um, that even further reduced uh, the way that people understand what's going on in Christianity, right? And so then when, when someone said, within that frame, then when someone says, you know, preaches the sort of evangelical version of the gospel, you have a, you know, 
you have a sin problem. Christ came to save you from your sins, you know, and so that you could be with him forever after death. That there's no cosmic mythic framework to fit that into. And even the question of exactly what is sin is not something that a lot of people consciously experience. Right. Um, whereas to, to, you know, to, in scripture, for instance, in um, when the, when the word sin is first used in the Bible, it's referred to, to Cain, uh, the, you know, the son of Adam. And it says that sin is crouching at your door. Uh, you have to master yourself before it masters you. Right. The word that's used there for crouching at your door is actually a, a borrowing from Akkadian, which refers to demons that crawl up through cracks in the earth and then attack people. That was the understanding of sin in the ancient world was it was a spiritual force that overcame people. Right. Rather than like, here's a list of, of bad things you're not supposed to do. And, oh, you did one. So now you have a penalty incurred. So you have to deal with this penalty. Right. Very interesting. Ruby, what are your thoughts? You look very interested. This is the most interested I've seen you. <laughs> oh, no, it's a lot of information for me, to be honest. It's a lot. So I'm trying to process here. Like, it's, yeah. Because I heard lots of, you know, like biblical words. And then, you know, I try, I need to, like, yeah, try to understand and follow up. Yeah. Yeah. What was your, just one more follow-up question to that, and then we'll get into what, we, what we're here to talk about. Um, what was your relationship with Christ before joining the Orthodox Church, and how has it changed? It's an interesting question, because like the frame itself, right, is a very evangelical frame in which to ask that question, okay. right? So like, I'll, I'll, and I mean, I'm, I'm, which I, I, I get it. I, I totally get it. Um, but like, or, you know, Orthodox people never ask each other. So what's your relationship with Christ? Like, how come? <laughs> um, so I think it's because the way that Christianity is understood is, um, is not framed in terms of, of emotion, right? Um, the, the way that the, this relationship language is often cast, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but, but I see it all the time. That, that relationship is described as being the opposite of something called religion, mm -hmm. right? I don't have a religion. I have a relationship, right. right? Religion is this cold, heartless, whatever. And then relationship is intimate and close and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and that sort of opposition is never, um, is, you know, from the point of view of historic Christianity is not presented ever in scripture. Like that's not a thing. You know, when God, for instance, in Leviticus commands, this is how you do sacrifices. This is how you're going to build the tabernacle. This is how you're going to build the temple. These are all the things that I expect you to do. This is how you offer incense. Here's the recipe for the incense that you're supposed to offer. Like that's all in the Bible. And it's directly from God himself. Like this isn't something that Moses and Aaron came up with, right? No one received that and said, well, that's all very interesting, God, but we want a relationship with you and not all of the stuff that you told us to do. Like, what's that all about, Right. Um, worship in the ancient world was understood as the way that you, the way that you made your God, whoever he was, part of your community and the way that you became part of his community. And as a result, you become like what you worship. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, 
that principle holds true no matter what people believe about it. So if you're an ancient Greek pagan and you worship Aries, the reason you worship Aries is because you want to be, you know, a big bad warrior or you want victory in war. If you worship Aphrodite, it's because you want to be beautiful or successful in seduction or whatever, right? If you worship Demeter, it's for the sake of your crops. Like, like it's really about you want to become like that god or goddess, right? And so then the worship of the one true god, the god who actually is the creator, um, makes you like him, right? So the way that you worship makes you like the, the one whom you're worshiping, right? Um, so, so then to answer your question, how does my relationship with God change from being an evangelical to becoming an Orthodox Christian? You know, evangelical worship is largely focused on, um, uh, it, it depends on where you are. I mean, in my earliest years, I was growing up in Baptist churches where it was, you know, three hymns with four verses each, and then a 45-minute sermon, and then however many verses of just as I am needed to be sung in order for people to rededicate themselves to Christ, right? Or some version of that, which I describe as the Baptist liturgy, hmm. right? It basically has the same shape. Uh, every time you just switch out some of the parts. And then the, the modern evangelical world, which is um, more of a, a, a pop music or rock concert, depending on where you are, um, that uh, may be well be accompanied by a lot of theatrical equipment, moving lights, fog machines, all that kind of stuff. You know, there needs to be a guy on a mixing board in the back making it all go. Um, and then uh, again, you still have the 45 minute to an hour long sermon. So the main piece is informational, like you're being taught. That's the main thing happening, right? And then the, the, the ending, again, it's still very much like the Baptist liturgy in many, many cases, although again, the, the parts are switched out and, and, and quite different. And so the, the main features of what's going on in the evangelical worship that I grew up with was uh, praising God through song, right? Um, learning about him from a good teacher, right? And then perhaps there may be, especially at the ending, a, uh, a call to dedicate oneself to Christ for the first time, or maybe to rededicate, you know, bring it back. You've been backsliding a little bit. Um, and so the, the focus is largely through is, is, is praise and information. And there's sometimes often a kind of emotional, you know, call, right. Which that comes out of revivalism. I mean, that was a deliberate thing that the early revivalists and the great awakening said, like, we need to have people have a big emotional experience because that's the context in which you can repent. Right. So that was, that was my experience in worship with Christ, you know, growing up. And then becoming an Orthodox Christian, um, Orthodox Christian worship is liturgical and ultimately focused on receiving the Eucharist, mm. right? So it's, it's, about, it's about communion with your God. So it's, it then plugs back into the biblical model of worship, which is about essentially offering hospitality to your God. And so therefore making him part of your, your community, your family through doing that. But one of the things that happens in Christianity is, the whole thing gets flipped against paganism, which is that God is actually offering his hospitality to you. He's the one who's offering the meal to you rather than you having to feed him. He doesn't need to be fed, right? He's not a petty little pagan God. Um, he's offering that hospitality to you and you, inviting you into his, 
his community, his family, to become one of what the scripture calls the sons of God, whereas Christ says in Luke 20, 36, equal to the angels, right? So my, my, my relationship with Christ changed from one which was about singing about how awesome he is and learning about him and the context of his coming and so forth and having this call to dedication or commitment or whatever to one where um, my experience is actually being at the table with him, actually touching him in a direct way. Not like I feel God was with us today, but actually I ate and drank his body and blood. I ate and drank from his table. And so I am in communion with him objectively, no matter how I felt about it. Right now, I mean, if I, if I came to it with a, 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 a flippant attitude or bad behavior or whatever, then obviously that's bad. St. Paul says that's bad. You, you can get sick or die if you do that. Right. He says that. Um, but, but yeah, so there's a, a very different sense. And um, when, when, when worship is liturgical, when worship is about, um, you know, sharing the sacrifice with God, the sacrifice that he made of himself, uh, that sets up the experience for Christianity as a, a, uh, a spiritual reality that's suffused everywhere, right? This kind of enchanted, mythic, cosmic uh, understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Right? What do you mean? You've used the word mythic a few times. I'm just wondering what, what does that word mean? Because yeah. when I think of mythic, I think of not... Uh, not true. Yeah. 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 Most people use the word myth to, re to mean a false story. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the word myth, it comes from the Greek mythos, which simply means a story. Right. And so the Bible itself is mythos. Right. Um, it, the word itself doesn't mean any, doesn't say anything about whether the story is true or false. It's simply a, a story, a mythos. Right. So the word, as it then gets used in, like in, uh, uh, in ritual theory and in anthropology and, and, uh, and some of these contexts and liter many literary contexts now too, and in a lot of biblical studies, they make a distinction between myth and mythology. So myth is a story that people ritually participate in. And so then therefore they become part of the story by virtue of their ritual participation. So the, the classic Christian example is, is, uh, participating in the Eucharist than the eating the, you know, Christ's body and blood is a participation in his, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, right? So you become part of that story by participating in that. Uh, another example would be, you know, the Passover, which is clearly linked to that and which God gives the ritual participation for how to participate in the Passover before the actual events of the Exodus occur. He teaches them how to do it. How do you participate in this thing that's about to happen? And then, and then it said, you know, every year they would do it and they would say, and they would enter into it. How, why is this night different from all other nights? In other words, the Passover becomes again today. So they're, they are present at the Exodus when they ritually participate in the Passover. Right. So that's what ritual participation is and what it's for. And then the distinction is made with mythology which is a myth that people no longer ritually participate in. And then the byproduct of that is the way that you suggested the use of the word, which is, I don't believe in this, you know, uh, pagans did it too, you know, like uh, pagan Greek pagans would participate in the myth of Persephone's abduction by, by the God of the underworld, by Hades, 
by going on a ritual search for Persephone, they would go throughout the city looking for her. Right. And so therefore enter into that experience. Okay. This is a lot of information. I'm going to definitely come back and uh, listen. I might have to listen to your podcast. What is the name of your podcast again for those listening who are interested? I've got a bunch, but the one that probably would be most relevant to the things I just said is called the Lord of Spirits which is a title that's given for God in the, the Enochic literature. He's called the Lord of Spirits, which is parallel to this title, Lord of Hosts, which you see in the Bible, the Lord mm-hmm. of the heavenly hosts, the angels. Yeah. One of, I don't know, one of my thoughts as I'm listening to you talk is this is a lot of information. It's sure. a lot of, for me, um, maybe... <laughs> Maybe Luther did simplify what needed to be done so that like, people like me could understand. But like, do you find yourself, um, I think I watched a video yesterday that 1%, is it 1% of Christians in the U.S. are Orthodox? Is that, is that about It's probably right? even fewer than that. Okay. So yeah. do you find that you are, that so much of your ministry is explaining these different things to people yeah. because it's so, Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a big explainer. <laughs> That's basically what I do for a living is is, you know, but I mean, you know, with regards to everything I just said, I always start by saying, look, there's a war on. Yeah. There was this rebellion that occurred against God. Yeah. And and that hit mankind. Yeah. Do you Which is simple to, which is simple to understand. I mean, that's not difficult. Right. And do you see that some of your evangelical brothers and sisters, um if you'd call them that, I don't know. But do uh, you sure. Yeah. But do you see that after talking with you or listening to you, maybe listening to your podcast, that they start to embrace that more and go, you're right. This is what scripture says. And you're right. Uh, it is. We do need to work out our faith with fear and trembling, like that kind of thing. Do you see there being a shift in that without necessarily saying, oh, now I'm orthodox? Because what when I'm listening to you talk, um, I'm thinking, there's certain things that you're saying that are right on. Like, in, <laughs> as I'm thinking through what I know of scripture, and especially as you're talking about, you know, the principalities and uh, the evil forces and all of that, that's like, that's totally true. And I've actually heard evangelicals in some some pockets talk about those issues. So do you see more of a conversation with people who are not necessarily turning to orthodoxy, perhaps, but are listening more to what you're talking about in terms of the gospel? Sure. Um you know, the, the main place I'd like to bring people back is to the scriptures, especially if I'm talking to someone with any kind of Protestant background. Um, you know, for the Orthodox, the scriptures are the very center of uh, and height of our of our tradition of what we believe in and who we are. But they're not exclusively so. That's not that's not how the scripture arises, you know, historically. Um, so though, so we don't treat it as this separate thing, right? Um, but but it's all there there's, there's nothing that we believe that's not there. Right. So, but, but yes, I have had the experience of people who are not, who do not actually belong to the Orthodox church, who hear some of these things and say, wait a minute. Um, yeah, right. Right. Uh, the, the distinction is that, um, for most, maybe not all, I don't know, but, but for most like evangelicals, um, this is something that's written in the scripture but is actually not actively part of their worship life, right? So the idea of Christ and his saints doing battle against the dark powers um, is not something that they're singing. Hmm. 
it's not something that um, is is uh, part of you know like I, I, you know I mentioned for instance the, the Eucharist right so um, the sacrifices that ancient Israel were were doing at the command of God and then and then what Christians do um, ending the animal sacrifices and the, then the one sacrifice is Christ right um, it's still basically the same thing which is which is sharing food with your God. Either way, it's sharing food. You know, all the sacrifices of ancient Israel, uh, the thing that they had in common, uh, generally speaking, was that they were all food. So they weren't all animals. I mean, there, were, there was grain and drink and stuff like this also offered to God. But it was always food, always food. And pagans were doing the same thing. They were offering food to their gods and also eating it. And so I, I like to say sometimes, you know, the difference between paganism and and the, the worship of, of Israel, whether it's ancient Israel or the church that is Israel, um, is actually not fundamentally different from what pagans were doing. They're not playing a different game. They're on different teams that are fundamentally opposed, right? Because one team is those who, who, who left the divine council and rebelled against God, right? And then the other, the other side is then those who are the faithful, those who are faithful to God. Um, and like I said, that is a present reality in Orthodox Christian worship all the time, right? I'll give you one example. So, um, for us, our Easter celebration, which we call Pascha, which is simply the Greek word for Passover for our, so our understanding Easter and Passover are literally the same event, right? They're not two different things. Um, so for us, you know, we, uh, we have something like 23 or 24 church services that lead up in the week or so right before that. So we're in church constantly, morning and night, every single day for about a week and a half. And um, the day before uh, Pascha itself, that Sunday, so we call that Holy Saturday, um, we sing lines from Psalm um, 82, you know, which begins with God stood up in the council of the gods and renders judgment or the divine council renders judgment, whatever. The last lines then are arise, O God, and judge thou the earth, for thou shalt inherit among all the nations. And this is simply the psalm. We're just simply singing the psalm, right? That's explicitly talking about these fallen powers that God is judging, just like when he said he was judging the gods of Egypt in the Exodus. He's, he's rendering judgment. He's giving his justice to those fallen powers who, instead of taking care of mankind like they were supposed to, oppress them and destroyed them right and then the last line is calling for him to rise from the dead arise O god give justice to the earth judge the earth for thou shalt inherit among the nations meaning all the the authority that once belonged to these dark powers who were supposed to be using it the right way has now been brought back to christ and now he's distributing that to his saints which is then echoed where right before he ascends into heaven he says all power in heaven and earth has been given to me Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In other words, I've taken back all this authority that was mine, belong, that was in the hands of these, these fallen angels, and now you are taking their place by, by reconquering this world in a spiritual sense in my name, right? Mm -hmm. So, again, it's all embedded in Scripture, but it's, it's um, you know— in my experience of evangelical worship and what I've continued to observe since in the years that I, since I left, it's not really part of the actual life. So it's like one thing to believe it, but then another thing to actually pray it 
and, you know, actually make it part of what you do every day. Right. So um, I, you know, I, the people that I talk to about this stuff who are not Orthodox Christians, um, even non-Christians, even people who are not Christian, right. Um, they often will hear things and say, wait a minute, that makes sense. Like non-Christians, many non-Christian religions recognize that there are multiple kind of spiritual beings out there and then a most high God. Like that's embedded in lots of religious traditions. Um, now, who and what that most high God is can vary depending on who you're talking about. Like ancient Baal worshippers said that Baal's father was the most high God. Uh, right. That's wrong. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, that's wrong, Baal. Um, but I've, 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 I've seen a, a continuum of people who will sort of move closer to the understanding that I'm talking about. And then some that will, will say, wait, okay, I believe that. I want that to actually be part of my life. So no matter what I think or feel about it, that's only one part of what Christianity is. You know, uh, it says that, that God is going to come and judge man, every man, not according to the things that he thought or the things that he, his opinions, his correct opinions about things, but according to his works. In other words, you know, it's, it's as it says that the, uh, it's kind of usually badly translated as the just shall live by faith, but really should be the just shall live by faithfulness. So what does faithfulness look like? Um, and I would say it's participation in, um, in this reality, the spiritual reality of, of the, 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 re the reclamation of the cosmos by Christ after it had been dominated and enslaved to, you know, as Hebrews calls him, the one who has the power of death, the devil. Mm. Well, very interesting. I want to pivot a little bit here. Um, Ruby, do you have any questions before before I ask the same questions I think that you already asked? But I would I would come back a little later and then, you know try to process. But yeah, no, yeah. I I don't right now. I you've written a, apparently an incredible book um, called Am I correct? Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy. Yes, that's one of my books. Yeah. Would you give us a brief synopsis of it and why you wrote it? So Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy is a book that compares Orthodox Christianity against almost every other variety of Christianity that's out there. And then also uh, a number of the world's main non-Christian religions, right? Not every single thing, but I think there's over a hundred different groups that I address in the book. And the, the bulk of it is focused, focused on the history of Christianity because that's largely my context. But there is a whole chapter on non-Christian religions. And the way that it does it is, um, you know, what the nerds in the academy called a, a, a diachronic analysis, which just means through history, through time, right? So a lot of times when people are looking at Christianity and then they start to research around, they see, wait a minute, there are hundreds, if not thousands of different Christian groups with different names and different ways that they worship and different things that they believe. And how am I supposed to sort through it? Like, this is, this is nuts. Right. And uh, is this really how it's supposed to be? <laughs> right. And um, people can kind of make a couple of conclusions from that. If that's the way that if they look at this massive variety and, and, you know, try to figure out what to do with that. One is to say, well, it's all basically the same. It's all basically the same, right? The goal is basically the same, 
right? Uh, the other one is to say, like, there's just so much complexity, I can't believe in any of it. It's just too much, right? Um, and so what, what the book tries to do is to help, um, you know, guide someone on a path to understanding, not starting from the point of view of this massive, diverse variety that's so complicated and difficult to understand, but actually going from the very beginning of Christianity and then watching through history what happens as parts break off and what they do along the way, right? And I, I try to be as, as fair as possible. It's not a polemical work where I'm just condemning everyone that I don't agree with. Like, that's not the point at all, right? No human being is my enemy. I have enemies. They are, they're demons, right? Because they're God's enemies. Um, but one of the things that I show, for instance, is that <clears throat> different religions actually have different goals in mind. So the idea, for instance, that they, they take everybody to the same place um, is not actually honest to what the religions themselves are saying they're trying to do. Whether they're right about whether it works or not, the actual goals that they set for themselves are, are different. And I'll give an example. Um, uh, for instance, in the collection of traditions that is called Hinduism, right? There are multiple possible goals even within those traditions. Even if you just live in one village and practice the local version of Hinduism, you could have the goal of making your current life better. You could also have the goal of, of making your next life better because they believe in reincarnation. You could also have the goal of trying to escape from the cycle of reincarnation itself and never have to deal with any of this ever again and be absorbed into oblivion and no longer, and that yourself no longer has any definition, right? Those are three goals that, that can exist among many just within that set of traditions, those religious traditions that are native to India largely in that area, right? Um, the goal of Christianity, historic Christianity, is, is different from that. Like there's no point at which historic Christianity says you want to be absorbed into the nothingness of God and no longer really exist as who you are right? That's what nirvana is for, for traditional classical Hinduism, by the way. Like, it's, 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 this, it's this escape from all of it. Um, Christianity does not have that goal. Christianity recognizes that the human person remains distinct, uh, you know, even into the life of the age to come. And, and the goal of historic Christianity is to prepare oneself for the resurrection. And therefore, then, as Christ says, the resurrection of the dead is going to be in two kinds. There's going to be the resurrection unto life eternal with him, and then the resurrection unto judgment or damnation, right? That's, that's kind of the goal of Christianity is to be able to, to prepare for that kingdom that is, that, is com that is coming and is to come at the same time, which is why Christ and John the Baptist and all the apostles always said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's not the goal of Hinduism. That's simply not its goal. That's, that's you know, so much uh, about the goal is predicated upon the understanding of how the way the world works, who God is, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so it's very clear if you look closely at what religions teach, that they don't, they're not trying to accomplish the same thing. And so this idea that they all lead to the same place is essentially to tell all the religions of the world, I know better than you what your religion actually is about, right? Mm. Um and then even within Christianity, then the various kinds of Christianity, the goal begins to fragment, 
you know, and, and a lot of that connects with, with everything we just talked about earlier about what is the gospel and how does it actually work? Um, you know, um, if you asked your average American Christian, they would say, well, I want to go to heaven when I die. That's what they would say the goal of Christianity is to go to heaven when you die. But, but that, that vision cuts out something really significant, which is the resurrection. It's not just life after death. There's life after life after death you know, Christianity has what they call a two-stage eschatology, which is two stages of the end of all things. You know, you die, and then there's a, a temporary stage, and then the resurrection happens, and then that's the age to come, right, in which things get sort of crystallized according to the vector that they were moving in before, Right. So, so orthodoxy and heterodoxy, I wrote it, the initial, there's, there's two editions now. The first edition was written as an educational uh, thing for my fellow Orthodox Christians. Like, look, you guys need to understand what else is going on so that we can have relationships with people and have intelligent conversations with them and not say the false thing. Well, we're really all alike or the other false thing, which is everything we believe and do is true. And everything outside of it is unmitigated darkness. Like that's also not true. Um, and then when I found out that that non-Orthodox people were reading it and actually using it to kind of connect with Orthodox Christianity, I was like, okay, I need to, I need to retool this now to, to have a broader reach. And uh, in doing that, I also added a bunch of other uh, more religious groups to it. Um, so now it's this, you know, 400 page thing. Uh, I know. Wow. Um, so, so that's, that's what it is and, 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 and why I wrote it. So, wow. Um, <laughs> I, I think, Ruby, we might need to grab that book. That might be something worth reading. Um, sounds like it. Did you talk about Buddhism in your book? And Yeah, B B Buddhism, is, Buddhism is mentioned in the chapter on non-Christian religions. What is the primary, in your perspective, what is the primary difference between historic Christianity and Buddhism? Um, so Buddhism actually historically has a close connection with Hinduism. So there's certain things that they share in common, like this idea of karma, right? Which is this sort of um, cosmic justice, right? Um, Buddhism is a sort of a rarefied, sort of almost philosophical version of, of Hinduism, at least some of the versions of it. But it also has um, this, this sense of serving these kind of divine beings in order to get certain kinds of results, right? So there's Buddhist shrines in which, you know, you might pay veneration to someone who is really advanced in the spiritual life, right? Uh, you know, so there's various bodhisattvas, right? Who are kind of like, almost like Buddhist saints on some level, if, if I had to parallel it to Christianity. Um, and, you know, the, the goals of Buddhism can be everything from trying to achieve peace in this life or just sometimes betterment of life to again, that sort of sense of utter escape from all of the suffering in this life, because one of the basic principles is life is suffering, right? That life is suffering. And so the idea is then to develop utter detachment from the things of this world so as to not be pulled around by that suffering, right? Um, that's a kind of a general version. There's lots of different kinds of Buddhism and depending on where you live, um, there's some kinds of Buddhism that have a notion of a heaven that people live in after they die, if they're sort of spiritually advanced. 
others that don't have that idea at all. Um, uh, so it kind of depends on which type you're talking about. And um, th the difference there really with Christianity is that Christianity is focused on, on Christ, who is the God-man, who is an actual person, who is fully God and fully man. He's not just an advanced, a spiritually advanced human, right? But he actually is the God who created the universe, who has a personal reality, right? That God is, in fact, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that that second person truly became man. He kept everything that it means to be God. He remained the creator while taking on everything that it means to be human. He took on human nature into his divine person, right? And so the goal of Christianity then is to, uh, is to be freed from slavery, not to just sort of the suffering of this world, but be freed from slavery to sin and death and the demonic powers that dominate us. And that's done by by being joined to Christ, by being rescued by him from this slavery, right? And so the, the goal is, is union with him and to become like him. Um, and, you know, God is, in Christianity, God is not identified as just sort of another name for the universe because God is uncreated and the universe is created. So he's other than the universe in a very fundamental way right? Um, that would be sort of the, the basic way I would summarize. I mean, there's a lot more that you could say. Uh, and again, there's a lot of different varieties of Buddhism, and Buddhism is a very old religion. So it's also kind of diversified itself a lot. Like Buddhism in Vietnam is different from Buddhism in China, different from Buddhism in, you know, Laos, different from Buddhism, different from the Buddhism that Hollywood celebrities practice, definitely. <laughs> uh, you know, th there's a lot of different things that go by that, by that name. Um, but um, like, if you read, for instance, the life of the Buddha, it's the, it's the story of a human being who becomes very divine, right? Um, and so then following in his footsteps and venerating him and showing him honor is a way to become like him, right? Um, there is a certain parallel between that and Christianity, except the, the big difference is that instead of venerating an advanced human being in order to become like him, we utterly worship the God become man in order to become like him, which is way above what any human being could ever possibly achieve, right? Um, so that's probably the short version, uh, I would say. <laughs> any follow-up to that, Ruby? <laughs> She's shaking Hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> She's got some things to think about, I think. Yeah. Uh, before I have Ruby ask the final question, I want to touch back on something you said earlier. You said that the gospel is not good news for everybody. Why, oh, did, right. you, why did you say that? What did you mean by that? So, um, you know, one of the things that's mentioned in scripture is the notion that the good news gets preached to the spirits who are in prison, right? You know, usually when we think of the gospel in the American context, we think of it as a kind of offer, like, let me tell you about what Jesus can do for your life right? You know, which you can understand cynically, or you can understand as like, no, look, look, you've got problems. And I, I have something for you, you know, something awesome. Um, but there's also this reference to preaching the good news in the underworld, in Hades, right? The place of death, 
that's in uh it's i think in one of saint peter's epistles if i remember correctly um it's either that or jude um but there's this reference to the spirits that are imprisoned right and uh if you think of the gospel as just like an offer to help people get saved then that makes no sense why would you go and preach to in the underworld <laughs> you know that that doesn't make any sense at all um but um the re if it's actually the announcement of a victory right which is again the way that the word gospel or evangelion would have been understood in the ancient world when that victory is announced in the city or whatever place it's being announced in including the underworld then for those who wanted this conquest to happen or who having heard of it are like yay we're being released from slavery to our former masters who were terrible that's good news for sure but if you were one of those who was conquered if you're one of those who was not on board with this this conquest of this coming king then then that's bad news it's very bad news because you know what's being preached to the spirits who are imprisoned who were sent there by god himself because of their rebellion against him okay like they were sent into the abyss, like this happens in places in scripture. It's, it's a victory over them that's being announced. You lost, right? So it's bad news for demons, very bad news for demons. And then by implication, anyone who sides with demons, it's bad news for them as well. But that's their choice. They don't, they don't have to do that. They don't have to serve demons. They can serve the God who created them and loves them and rescuing them from this evil so the gospel is it is good news for those who are going to get on board with the kingdom that is coming for those who repent who turn to christ who 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 don't do the works of demons but instead do the works of their father who is in heaven right become truly imagers of god um it's good news for them but it's bad news for the losers and the losers are the losers losers by their own choice they chose to rebel against god and then anyone who joins in that rebellion as well so yeah the gospel is not always good news well ruby yeah the, i just have to say father andrew are you familiar with david wood uh, the the man who brought uh, nabil qureshi to christ are you familiar with no. nabil qureshi's story um no. Okay, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's an incredible book. Uh, but anyway, there was a man named David Wood who uh, shared faith with him. And for years, they went back and forth. And um, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm like, man, he sure sounds like somebody I know. Well, David Wood has a YouTube channel, and your voices are exactly the same. I, I wow. swear to <laughs> Even the nuance, I'm like, whoa. I'm going to have to look this guy up. <laughs> you might have to look him up, David Wood. Um, and he has a ministry as well. Uh, but anyway, he was in jail for like almost trying to kill his dad. And uh, he came to Christ. And then years later, he shared faith with a fellow college student who was Muslim. And they began this great com. Anyway, whole thing. Okay, that's a sidetrack. Ruby, uh, you have the final question there, and we'll wrap up. Um, the Finding Something Real podcast is about the journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love of those four gifts that perhaps we can find in Jesus Christ. 
Which of those stands out to you the most in your life right now, and why? Hmm. Could you list them off for me again? I remember authenticity yeah. and love. Yeah, sure. It's restorations, eternity, rest, authenticity, and love. Wow. Um, it's hard for me to separate those, separate those things from each other. Um, but if I had to pick one, I would say love. Because God himself describes himself as love. God is love. Which doesn't mean that God is a warm feeling. Right? But that God in his his presence in the world, his working in the world, his constant um, energizing in the world, that God, uh, he, he, he enters into his creation in order to, to rescue it from the, the domination of, of these evil forces, right? Which, which makes them very mad. I mean, it's, it's, it says that the devil, it says in scripture, the devil fell through envy. Envy of what? Envy of God's love for mankind. Envy of what God is offering mankind, which is, you know, to become, as, as Christ said, sons of the resurrection, sons of God, equal to the angels. Um, you know, so much about uh, religion that exists in the world in various forms is about people's attempt to, um, frankly, to kind of trap and control spiritual forces for their own benefit, you know, uh, if I do this, then I'm going to get this benefit, right? Um, you know, that, that, that we, we go on quests for, um, for spiritual benefits, for, for ex spiritual experiences, for just simply making our, our material situation better, right? And it's always it's it's almost always couched in terms of like people hoping that their their deity whatever it is will respond to them you know i am hope i i've gone gone on this quest and i i hope that they respond so i can get what it is that i need or want or whatever um and we don't have to see it in cynical terms we can, we can see it as genuine longing from people but the part of the message of christianity is that god himself has taken the initiative seeing the situation of mankind and all of the evil that has occurred because of, of this rebellion that I spoke about, that God himself took the initiative to come and reclaim his creation from that. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, you know, you guys, you dug your own hole. You joined the rebellion. Get out. He could have done that and, and had sort of every sort of right to do that. You know, if, at least from our point of view of what justice is, which is not God's point of view. God's point of view is, so justice is, is not about penalizing evil. It's about setting things right. It's about setting things right, putting things in, in their proper place. And if you're an oppressor, being put in your proper place, that's bad news for you. Because that means you're going to be pushed out of that position of oppression. But if you're one of the ones that's been oppressed, if you're someone who's been enslaved, if you're someone who's, who's been caught up in that corruption and decay and death, um, then it's good news because God instituting his justice, his bringing his justice to the world is going to lift up the fallen. Those people who have been, who've been brought down by 
by evil are going to be lifted up and rescued from that, right? So if I had to pick one out, it would be love because God describes himself as love. He's, he, he sacrificed himself. And in a very real sense, God is the only one who can love because love is self-sacrifice that is not based on any kind of need, right? It's not based on any kind of need. And God is the only one who needs nothing. He's completely self-sufficient. He does not need to be served. He does not need to be praised. He does not need to be fed, you know? Uh, and so he is the only one who, who can love because he has nothing to gain from it. There's nothing that God can, can gain that makes him better or bigger or more fulfilled. He is who he is. Right. Uh, and, and so then here's the cool thing. So you might be thinking, well, if you're saying God is the only one who could really love, what about love I've experienced from other people or whatever, every love that someone experiences in the, this world, whether it comes through another person or some experience that they had or whatever, that is all God's work. God is working in the world. So every love that you receive, even from an imperfect person, even from a, a, a sinner or someone who's, who's half joined in the rebellion, but still somehow self-sacrifices for some moment, that is an act of God, right? Every good thing comes from God. There is no good that is independent of him. So every good that you experience is from God. So that means that the love of God is so pervasive that it is utterly inescapable. Every, every love that you experience, every good thing that you receive is the love of God. Whether you perceive it that way or not, right? This morning, you know, when I brushed my teeth, I did not perceive that the toothpaste was a gift from God, but nonetheless, it actually is maybe not the greatest of his gifts, but it's still from him. Everything comes from him. He's the creator of all. Every good thing comes from God. So if, if there is any good, then it's, then it's from him. It is his love working in the world. And that's what it means in scripture when it says that God is love. It's not that God has warm feelings about you. I don't know what it's like to be God. How could I ever describe his feelings? Does he even have feelings in the way that I, I don't know, you know, uh, I don't even know what it's like to be another person to say what it's like to be God. It doesn't mean that God, you know, goes, oh, when he looks at us, it means that he is giving of himself always, always. So I would pick love. Mm. Uh, well, Father Andrew, I, um, this has been fascinating. I may have to invite you on another time because uh, this is, uh, I'm learning new things and now I need to look up a bunch of stuff and uh, there will pro probably be a follow-up conversation in my mind that happens to this. Um, so I appreciate you coming on and sharing and uh, enlightening us on some things. And um, Ruby, thank you so much for being here. And I know it's late in Taiwan, I appreciate you. And I'm excited to record one or two more conversations as well with you. But um, Father Andrew, thank you so much. And until next time. Thank you very much for inviting me into your space. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me 
to share their personal stories, and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.